The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11. I invite you to open your Bibles and read along with me. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on page 183 in the New Testament. So 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11, hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Obviously, we're not reading out of John 6, but uh, the theme is the same. And, um, today is uh, part four of questions on election. And as far as my plan is concerned, today is the last day for that. Um, So to that end, let's pray together that the Lord will allow this to be the last day on this, on this topic. And, uh, uh, Lord, we say that in, in jest in some ways. And, um, this is a glorious truth that you've revealed in your word, Lord, and if we spend the rest of our lives contemplating it, we have not uh, gone into error we would be better off for it. So, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to see and know the glory of this truth today, that it would be more than a reason to be offended, that it would be more than something that needs to be explained away or ignored, but it would be a precious truth to each one of our souls because it is a truth that you have revealed in your word that it might grant to us a blessing. And so please help us know that blessing this morning. 
And may it give us boldness, Lord. And, and, and even as your word that was just read, even as it says, may our confidence in our own election and calling lead us to having an abundantly supplied entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or there is assurance to be had in relation to this doctrine of election. And I pray that you would work that into each one of our hearts this morning. Uh, Father, as we, as we come to your word, as your gathered people, we remember that there are some who are not among us this morning. And um, Lord, we pray that those who are not able to be with us, whether traveling or because of illness and sickness at home, that you would bless them where they are, that you would minister to their souls uh, with your truth on this Lord's day, despite their being absent from the body, uh, the gathered body. And we pray that you would put within them a hunger and a yearning to be gathered together with your people. Lord, we remember in a very special way um, our brother Greg and Vicki. And uh, Lord, knowing that the time of his departure is coming soon, we pray for him. Lord, we ask that until that moment comes, you would keep him encouraged in his soul despite the physical challenges and pain that he's enduring. God, that you would keep his eyes fixed upon you as the author and the perfecter of his faith, the one who for the joy set before you endured the cross and despised the shame so that you might redeem him and bring him to glory with you. You tasted death for him, Lord, so that you might deliver him from the fear of death. So please help him revel in that freedom and in that glory, even now as he prepares to cross over that river death and to come be with you forever. Lord, we ask that you would administer to his heart and soul the hope of the gospel. That you would keep his mind fixed upon things above where Christ is. Because that is where his life is truly hid with you. It's in Christ. We pray for Vicki and Sarah and the rest of the family as they prepare to let him go and as they walk with him up to that final point when they have to say goodbye for now. We pray, Lord, that you administer to them in their time of need. Give them grace to mourn well, but to mourn in hope. And uh, to go on without their husband and father and loved one until the day when you call them home. May they be faithful to you, Lord, and may, may we as a church body support this family in every way that we possibly can. And give us grace, Lord, as we come to your word. Open our hearts and minds to understand and receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been visiting with us the past few weeks, you might be tempted to think that all we talk about around here is uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation and the doctrine of election. And that is, that is not the case. Um, but these are important doctrines and truths that we don't want to shy away from 
when they come up in our regular preaching and teaching ministry here at Oak Ridge. And so over the last few weeks, we've been seeking to answer some questions that have come up regarding election and God's sovereignty and salvation. And most of you are, are aware by now of why we're doing this, but for the sake of those who may have joined us more recently, uh, this discussion on election was sparked by what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 6. Uh, we are currently, as a church body, walking through the Gospel of John. We've been doing that since March of 2021, I believe, and we are in John chapter 6 currently. And in John chapter 6, Jesus is addressing reasons why this crowd that was coming after him was not truly believing in him. In John 6.30, they said it was because he had not done enough signs to prove himself to them. And that's why they weren't yet ready to believe in him. But Jesus goes on to explain the true reason why they weren't believing in him in the rest of the chapter, which is, be, which is simply that they were not given to him to be saved, John 6.37, because all that the Father gives him will come to him. And this crowd is not coming to him in true faith, so what does that mean about the crowd? It means that the Father had not given them to the Son. Or in John 6.44, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, this crowd is not truly coming to Jesus. So what does that mean about them? It means that they're not being drawn by the Father to come to him. Or John 6, 45, uh, all who are taught of God, everyone who hears and learns from the Father, what do they do? They come to Jesus. Now, if this crowd is not coming to Jesus, it means that they are not being taught of the Father. They are not learning and hearing from the Father to come to him. And then Jesus caps it off in John 6, 65, when he says, no one, this is why I told you, no one is able to come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So everyone who does come to Jesus, it was granted to that person by the Father to come to Jesus. Everyone who does not come to Jesus, it was not granted by the Father for that person to come. Jesus could not be more clear in what he says in this chapter. And so here we have the doctrine of election being brought up before us in John 6, and the doctrine of God's, sal God's uh, sovereignty in salvation. And we don't want to ignore these truths and just pass by them as if they're not there in the chapter. That would not do any of us any good. And so that's why we're talking about this, this doctrine. Now, so according to Jesus, the reason these Jews in John 6 were not coming to him was because it had not been given to them to come to him. He, they had not been entrusted to Jesus in order to save by the Father. Now that brings us uh, to some questions, right? These truths obviously arouse within us important and significant questions relating to the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty and salvation. And so over the last number of weeks, we've been trying to answer those questions uh, such as, how is election fair? If election is true, how could that possibly be fair and just on God's part? Or secondly, what about man's free will? Doesn't God's sovereignty and, sovereignty and salvation violate man's free will? Or what about the Bible's teaching of human responsibility? Doesn't election and God's sovereignty and salvation undermine the reality of human responsibility? 
Or number four, if election is true and God is sovereign, then why should we even evangelize? Because God's already chosen who will and will not be saved. And then where we ended last week, how can election be true if God desires all people to be saved? So these are the questions we've been walking through. And if you weren't here for our answers to any of those questions, then I invite you to go uh, look up on Rumble, uh, find the church's page on Rumble, or go to the website, and you can find those sermons there. You can also find it on YouTube, but I'm not encouraging anybody to use YouTube, despite the fact that we're streaming on YouTube right now. Um, It'll make no significance whatsoever to the bottom line of YouTube, whether we stop using YouTube or not, but it's the principle of the matter. (laughs) And I hope that you get that. If enough people begin to operate on principle, then real change can actually take place. But until we do that, we're just going to keep suffering from the same tyranny that we've been suffering under the last number of years. So off of that soapbox, if you, uh, if you weren't here for these, these sermons on these Sundays when we were addressing these questions, and I would invite you to go find those sermons and listen to them, I'm not going to rehash our answers to those questions this morning. However, I do want to return to the last question that we were at last week. How can election be true if God desires all people to be saved? Now, we started answering that question, first of all, by affirming the fact that in Scripture we do find that God does desire all sinners in the world to be saved. He has a genuine, sincere desire for all of his image bearers to come to the knowledge of salvation. We see that, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, where it says very plainly, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I do not believe that's talking about classes of people, categories of people, all different kinds of men. And I've given reasons for that whenever I preached through that passage when we were walking through 1 Timothy. So I invite you to go listen to that if you're interested for why I don't believe this is talking about classes of people. We saw that in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, right? As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his wicked way and live. Seems to be a universal statement of God's lack of pleasure in the wicked perishing, but rather that the the Lord would desire the wicked to turn and live. Acts 17.30 is very clear. God calls everyone, all men, everywhere to do what? To repent. To turn from their sin and to come to Christ for salvation before the day of judgment arrives. And so in all these ways... And many other passages, we see very clearly God does have a universal desire for all people to be saved. We then began to examine how election could be possible or how it could be true if that is a reality. So if it is a reality that God desires all people to be saved, then how in the world could the Bible ever say that election is true? where God has only chosen to save some sinners to be saved. He desires all to be saved, but has only chosen some to be saved. How in the world could that be true? Well, we started answering that question simply by pointing out that denying election and God's sovereignty and salvation does not solve that problem. Just because you deny God's sovereignty and salvation or you deny election, you still have not solved the problem 
that God desires all to be saved, and yet at the end of the day, not all are going to be saved. Those who deny election agree that God has a desire to save everyone. That's why they deny election. But, even they must acknowledge that at the end of the day, not everyone will be saved, and... If God really wanted to save everyone, God has the power to save everyone, so why doesn't He do it? Unless you're going to say that God does not have the power to save anyone, but rather that salvation is entirely in the hands of man. Unless you're going to say that God's hands are bound by man's will, then you have to acknowledge that if God wanted to save everyone, He could but he chooses not to save everyone for some reason. Why is that? We offered three reasons last week, right? And I'm just going through this so that we're all on the same page as we begin. We offered three reasons last week. Three options for answering that question. Number one, God desires all men to be saved, but he's not powerful enough to save them. Right? And we know that that's not true because of statements like Mark 10, 27, where Jesus, in reference to saving people, salvation, Jesus says, it's impossible with man, but nothing will be impossible with God. God can save anyone that God wants to save. Otherwise, who ultimately has the power of salvation? Not Satan. Man. And God is limited by man's decision. So God desires, but He doesn't have the power to actually do what He desires. He has to wait for man to fulfill the desires of God. Boy, that's really demeaning when it comes to the character and nature of God, isn't it? And it puts man in his wrong place and brings God below his rightful place. So that's first option. That can't work. Number two, the second option is God does desire that everyone would be saved, but he has chosen to elevate man's will above his desires. God does desire that all would be saved, but he has chosen to elevate man's will above his own desires. Now, we talked about why that can't be true. Because, once again, who is ultimate in that situation? Man is ultimate, and God is committing idolatry. Because God is submitting his desires and his will to the will of man. And besides that, just logical insanity, clear statements of Scripture tell us that that cannot be the case. Romans chapter 9, verse 16, whose will is ultimate in salvation? Is it man's will or is it God's will? It's God's will. Because it's not, it does not depend, salvation, having mercy from God, it does not depend on the man who wills. Nor does it depend on the man who runs. It's not about whether they were willing to be saved or not. It's not about whether they've worked enough to be saved or not. Ultimately, it depends on God whose freedom it is to choose whether or not to give mercy. That's the argument of Romans chapter 9, right? So we know that the second option can't be true. It can't be that God desires all to be saved, but has elevated man's will above his own desires. 
Because Scripture plainly teaches us it's not about man's will, it's about God's will. So that leaves us with one more option, which is this. God desires that everyone would be saved, but chooses not to save everyone according to his wise counsel and the purpose of his will. As as far as I can see it, you only have one of those three options to choose from. God desires, but he's not powerful enough to save. He desires, but he leaves it up to man. Or he desires, but does not choose to save everyone. Last week we acknowledged that we see in Scripture that God does will for certain things to happen that he does not desire or delight in. You agree with that? God wills for certain things to happen. That is, he decrees that certain things will happen. He determines that certain things will happen. That's what God's will means. When we're talking about God willing for something to happen, we are talking about God decreeing that it will happen. So God has determined that certain things will happen that he does not inherently delight in. Right? So for instance, remember Joseph. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph's brothers meant evil against him, but God used it for good. No, that's not what it says. God meant it for good. God was active in determining that these things would happen for a good purpose. Now, God doesn't delight in, nor does He desire, things uh, such as uh, murder, conspiracy to murder, abducting someone and selling them into slavery, lying to His Father about what had happened. God doesn't delight in or desire any of that stuff. But He determined that those things would happen in order to accomplish a greater purpose. So here we have God willing for something to happen, though he does not desire the things that he wills. You have the same thing with Jesus in Acts 2.23. Obviously, God does not delight in lawless men crucifying his son. Does God take pleasure in lawless men abounding in lawlessness? This is Psalm 2. The nations were raging. They were plotting in vain to to, uh, burst uh, apart the, the bonds of the Lord and His anointed and to cast their fetters off from them. That was what was being manifested at the crucifixion of the Son of God. It was the hatred of man for God. That's what was being put on display. You know, people say all the time, if if we could just be more like Jesus, the world would love us. Are you kidding? Jesus was the most hated man in the world. Maybe the world doesn't hate us enough because we don't look enough like Jesus. Right? Another soapbox. The point is, God in this passage has determined... He has predetermined. He has foreordained. He has decreed. He has sovereignly willed that lawless men would crucify His Son. Now, God does not delight in 
the rebellious and sinful acts of man. But He determined that these acts would take place so that salvation would come to His people. So He decreed that something would happen that He did not delight in. You see this very plainly in Acts 4.28 where uh, He predestined these things to occur. Though He does not delight in what happened in and of itself inherently. Now my whole point with that is, is simply to prove that it's possible for God to will something to happen that He does not delight in. So if it's possible for God to will what He doesn't desire or does not delight in, then is it not possible for Him to desire what He chooses not to will? If He can will what He does not delight in, then is it possible for Him not to will what He would delight in? Yes, it is. We would have to say yes. That as our Creator, God has a genuine and sincere desire that all of His creatures would come to the saving knowledge of the truth. But, there is a greater desire at work in the heart of God. A desire that is greater than His desire for all men to be saved. And that is a a desire for a greater good and a greater demonstration of His glory that leads to Him sovereignly choosing not to will all people to be saved. Say that again in a different way. God desires all people to be saved sincerely, but because of a greater desire For a greater good and a greater demonstration of His glory, He does not will sovereignly to bring all people to salvation. Now that might leave you, or it might leave all of us, as it leaves me, with a pretty significant question. Why not? Why not? If God has a desire to save everyone, but determines that He will not save everyone, why? Well, we don't know all the reasons why. In fact, I don't know that we know any reasons why, apart from general answers that Jesus and the Apostle Paul give us in the New Testament. In Matthew eleven twenty-five to 26, Jesus says that... God has chosen not to save everyone simply because that is the good pleasure of His will. Those are the words of Jesus. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, God is working all things after the counsel of His will. Romans 11, the end, right? The exaltation of the wisdom of God in the way that God has determined to do everything. It's inscrutable. So we don't know all the reasons why other than this is what God has chosen to do and this is what God has seen to be wise in His own eyes. However, there are three truths that are crystal clear that we must affirm. All right? You guys awake? Yeah? Good. I like seeing faces that are kind of smiling and uh, joyful to be here even. That would, that's great. We should be joyful when we come to the house of the Lord and 
sitting under, under his word, and I'm going to do my best to not put you to sleep with the rest of the morning. Hopefully this is engaging for you. All right, so we don't know all the reasons why God chooses not to save everyone, but we do know, uh, we do see in Scripture three truths that are crystal clear and that we must affirm. Truth number one, the call of the gospel goes out indiscriminately to all the world. And this is a sincere, well-meant offer of salvation to the world. The call of the gospel goes out indiscriminately to all the world, and this is a sincere, well-meant offer of salvation to all the world. So there are no exclusions here. When the call of the gospel goes out, it goes out to everyone. Right? So we see this, for example, in Revelation 22, verse 17, where the Lord says, Whoever desires, whoever thirsts, let him take the water of life freely. Take it. If you want to take the water of life from the hand of Christ, then come and take it. Receive it. If you're thirsty, then come grab it. That invitation goes out to everyone. Isaiah 45, 22, we pointed to this one last week. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And what follows is a reason or a justification for why he's calling all the world to turn to him. It's because eventually all the world is going to stand before him for judgment. And all the world and everyone in it is going to swear allegiance to the Lord God of all things. They're going to swear allegiance saying, in the Lord alone is righteousness and strength. And in that is this self-renunciation. This, this, renounce, this renouncing of all goodness and all thinking that somehow I was in the right. And it's this declaration that God was the only one who was ever in the right. I'm swearing allegiance that in the Lord alone is righteousness and strength. God says everyone is going to come to that point where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to swear that allegiance. And why that's important for this discussion is because the call to turn and be saved is as broad and, as, and is as expansive as is the group that's going to be judged. So if everyone is going to be judged, then the call for, to come to salvation goes out to everyone. Does that make sense? So this call to turn to God and be saved goes out to as many as will be judged. And so that tells us that the gospel calls any and every sinner in God's creation to come to salvation. Everyone is called to repent. And everyone who responds to that call, Jesus gives this promise in John 6.37, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is a gentle and a lowly shepherd who calls everyone who is weary and heavy laden to come to him. Whoever you may be in this room this morning or listening online or wherever it is, whoever you may be, this is Christ's word to you. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It doesn't matter who you are. 
Jesus gives us that invitation, and the one who gives that invitation will welcome everyone who takes him up on it. So the question here is not, well, am I elect? Does that invitation belong to me? Can I come and believe in Jesus? None of those questions are what you need to be asking. The question is, are you willing to accept the invitation and come? Will you come? That's the ultimate question. Will you come? You know, no one has a right to think that this offer does not belong to them. We haven't gotten into this, but the opposite, of the doc- the opposite party in the doctrine of election uh, is the group that's, that's often referred to as the reprobate. Right? And what that word simply means is it's the group that was passed over. Not a group that was created specifically so that, you know, maniacally so that God could send them to hell and take pleasure in punishing them. That's not what the doctrine of reprobation is. The doctrine of reprobation is simply the doctrine that acknowledges that in choosing to save some, God chose to pass over and leave others. Now here's my point with that. There's no one alive and breathing today who has any right to consider themselves to be among the reprobate and not among the elect, unless they refuse to believe. This is a good quote from Herman Bavinck from Reform Dogmatics, volume 2, page 402. He's a great guy, Herman Bavinck. I like him. He's hard to read, though, at times. But he says, No one has the right to believe that he or she is a reprobate, For everyone is sincerely called to believe in Christ with a view to salvation. One's own life and all that makes it enjoyable is proof that God takes no delight in his death. You see what he's saying there? The fact that you're still alive proves God's love towards you. The fact that you have food to eat today and clothes to put on and a house to go home to, and even if you didn't have any of those things, if you were still breathing God's air, if your heart was still beating and your brain is still functioning well enough to cause you to live, to allow you to live in this body, that is an expression of God's love and desire towards you to be saved. To recognize His goodness in those areas and to turn to Him and and, and receive salvation. If you are breathing and alive, you have no right to count yourself as a reprobate, but you have the command placed upon you by God to turn from your sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, will you do that? Will you turn and will you believe? So that's, that's one truth that is crystal clear that we must always affirm. That the call of the gospel goes out indiscriminately to all the world, And it goes out as a sincere and well-meant offer of salvation to everyone. Number two, second truth that we must affirm. The blame for not responding to the call of the gospel is laid squarely upon the sinner, not God. The blame for not responding savingly to the call of the gospel is laid squarely upon the sinner, not God. So very often there's this retort against the doctrine of election. Well, if that's true, then the ungodly can stand before God and blame Him for them not believing. Well, the Scripture won't allow that, and neither will the Lord. 
John 5, 34. I've said this already in this series, but Jesus speaking to a group of people whom he is going to say later on do not belong to his sheep and cannot believe because they don't belong to his sheep. It's John 10, 27 and 28. To that same group, he looks at them in John 5, 34 and says, I say these things to you that you may be saved. Now, why don't they believe? Why, why will they not come to salvation? John 5.40, Jesus lays all the blame upon them. He says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You are not willing. It's not that God's not willing for you to have life because I'm telling these things to you that you might be saved. I'm, in, I'm expressing the willingness of God for you to be saved. But you will not come. How does that work? How can that be possible? Well, I'm not sure we can explain all of how, but we have to acknowledge that it's a reality. The clearest example of this is actually found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, where we're told that God sends upon a people a strong delusion so that they might believe a lie and be condemned with all the rest. Now, why does God send on them a strong delusion to their condemnation? Why does God consign them to their unbelief and to the end of being condemned? Because, verse 10, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So who is responsible for not being saved in this scenario? Is it God who is responsible or is it the person who chooses not to receive the love of the truth? It's that person. The reason God sends on them a strong delusion and will ultimately condemn them is because they would not receive the love of the truth so that they might be saved. You see this again in verse 11. For this reason, God will send on them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie and be condemned with the rest in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in, un in unrighteousness or wickedness. So according to these verses, why does God judge this group of unbelievers? Well, he judges them because they will not receive the love of the truth. He judges them for not believing in the truth. He judges them because they, they, they take more pleasure in unrighteousness than they take pleasure in God. They want their sin. They love their sin more than they love God. That's why God judges and condemns them. And so the blame is clearly laid at the feet of the sinner for not believing in the gospel, not laid in the hands of God for not allowing them to believe. Do you see that? Far fewer yeses to that one than the last time I asked that question. The scriptures clearly show us and teach that the blame for not responding to the call of the gospel to come and be saved is laid squarely upon the sinner and not God. It is the sinner's fault. It is not God's fault. But I want to notice a third affirmation in the verses that follow here in 2 Thessalonians 2. So the first affirmation is the call of the gospel goes out indiscriminately to all the world, and this is a sincere, well-meant offer of salvation. The second truth, the blame for not responding to that call 
lays squarely upon the sinner, not upon God. And then number three, the credit for anyone responding to the call of the gospel belongs to God. The credit for anyone responding to the call of the gospel savingly belongs to God. The credit is God's. So if you choose not to believe in the gospel, that's your fault. You made your choice. And the Lord is allowing you to make that choice. If you believe in the gospel unto salvation, that's God's fault, if you will. God is the one who made you believe. Because if he had left you to yourself, you would never have come to faith. You would never have chosen to. You would have continued choosing your sin in your own ways rather than God. So this is a third, and we see this right here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Where Paul has just said, (laughs) he's just said, God is going to send on these who choose not to believe. These who will not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. God's, God's going to condemn them in their sin, and he's going to send on them a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. That's his judgment on a culture when they refuse and and rebel against him. He hands them over to believe in a lie. But here in verse 13, notice what Paul says. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. So we're talking about believers, those who have responded to the the call of the gospel to be saved. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because they made a smart decision and chose God when everyone else didn't? Is that why Paul is going to give thanks to God for their their being saved? Because they made the right decision. Was it because they exercised their will when others didn't? No. No. Why does Paul give thanks to God for their salvation? Because, verse 13, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Why is is Paul going to give thanks to God for their salvation? Because God chose to save them. And in choosing to save them, ordained that they would be sanctified by the Spirit and that they would be given faith to believe in the truth. So what distinguishes between those who will and those who will not believe in the gospel, according to these verses in 2 Thessalonians 2? What distinguishes between the one group who refuses to receive the love of the truth and be saved, and the group who actually does receive the truth and is saved? What distinguishes them? Well, according to verse 13, would it not be the fact that God has chosen to save one group and has not chosen to save the other? I did not insert that word into that verse, by the way. I didn't didn't alter that verse at all. We give thanks to God for you, brethren, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation. It's election, isn't it? And notice how God's choice reveals itself. We're going to get into this a little more in just a minute, but... When God has elected to save someone, that election manifests itself in a certain way in time. So if someone is chosen by God for salvation, it will manifest through the sanctifying work of the Spirit taking place in that person's life. Separating them from sin and separating them unto the truth of the gospel. 
So when the gospel comes and the Spirit is working in the heart of one who is chosen to be saved, by, chosen by God for salvation, the Spirit will sanctify that heart so that he or she begins to see the truth and respond to it rightly. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, the illuminating work of the Spirit in the heart of a sinner. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Ephesians 3, 14 and following. 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says that the mind that's set on the flesh cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God because it can't understand them. You have to be given a mind that can understand the things of the Spirit of God before you can understand them (laughs) and receive them. So election manifests through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Election manifests by belief in the truth. If you are a believer in the truth, if you have come to truly and sincerely and genuinely have faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, that is an evidence that God has chosen you to be saved. That's a mark of election in your life. And then you notice verse 14. And it was for this that he called you through our gospel. That's an evidence of election, of God's choosing you for salvation, how you respond to the gospel. So when the gospel is preached and you hear about Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, you hear about Christ suffering under the weight of judgment that belongs to you as a sinner, you hear about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead in victory over death and in victory over your sin, conquering sin and death and hell for the sake of His people and ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father and coming again one day to judge the world in righteousness. When you hear the gospel message preached, how does your heart respond? Does it call you to come unto God? Does it draw you after Himself? Or are you indifferent to it? Because if you are indifferent to the Gospel, then God is not calling you through that Gospel to salvation. In other words, if you can hear the truth of the Gospel and the judgment to come, and the realities of heaven and hell and Christ as the only way to salvation for anyone. If you can hear God's call to repent of sin or else face the consequences and be indifferent to all of that. Have a heart that is as hard as a stone and that does not respond to God's commands. If you can know the Gospel and continue living a life of sin, you are not being called by God through that Gospel. Because God's call changes you. It alters your life. When you see the truth of Christ, you cannot turn back away from it. You are enamored by the truth that you see in Him. So when God has chosen someone for salvation, there will come a point in time in that person's life where the gospel will become exceedingly precious to that person. More precious than sin, more precious than the fear of man, more precious than their own ambitions and their own will and desires. Everything else will fade away into insignificance in the light of the the glory of God that shines in the face of Christ when you are unable to see it. And when God has chosen someone for salvation, He speaks that light into their hearts according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he causes them to see it. That's what it means to be called through the gospel. 
that through the preaching of the gospel, you're called out of sin and called unto God. So for those who refuse to believe in the gospel, whose fault is it? According to scripture, whose fault is it? It's that person's fault. But for those who do believe, who gets the credit? God. Because God is the one who loved them, and God is the one who chose them for salvation, and God is the one who called them through the gospel, and God is the one who sent upon them the Holy Spirit to do His sanctifying work. And if those things are missing from a person's life, what that is evidencing is that, at least to this point, they are not showing themselves to be among the elect of God. Now, for some people, this happens on the deathbed, doesn't it? They all of a sudden see the glory of Christ. They are called by the gospel when they take their last few breaths. The man dying on the cross, right? He was, he was converted on his deathbed, if you will. You never know whether someone is or is not among the elect until they've already died. And then definitively on the day of judgment, we will know for certain. Now, but this is why Paul gives thanks to God for these believers, rather than thanking them for believing. Did you pick up on that? God, Paul gives thanks to God for them believing. He does not thank them for believing the message. Why is that? Because ultimately it's up to God. It's the reason they are believing is because of God. He thanks God because God was responsible for bringing them to faith. Now, so you can see in this, in these three points, that there's a level of tension on this issue that is presented to us in Scripture. And we are going to go into error if we begin to work against any one of these three statements. If we work against the universal call and sincere desire of God for men to come to salvation, then we are going to go into error. Hyper-Calvinism. If we deny the responsibility of man, or if we deny the others in relation to the responsibility of man, then we're going to go into another error, which is Arminianism. We have to maintain all three of these convictions in order to walk in the path of Scripture. The universal call goes out. If, they, if people don't believe, they are responsible for it. It's their choice not to believe. And if anyone does believe, it's because of the grace of God. Those three things, we have to hold fast to them. Now, maybe I beat a dead horse on that. I'm sorry. You guys know me by now. That's my preaching style. <clears throat> so hopefully it's helpful. Now, the last question as we end. Number six. <clears throat> if all of this is true, if election is true, if God's sovereignty and salvation is true, if Jesus' words in John 6 are true, then how can I know whether I am among the elect? And we've already gotten into this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but let's go a little further. <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but this is the most important question we can be asking ourselves when it comes to the doctrine of election. How do I know if I am among the elect? In fact, in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, what was read this morning, we have this command being laid upon us to make sure that we are among the elect. We have to examine ourselves and test ourselves to see if our calling and election is sure. True. 
So 2 Peter 1.11, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if these things, these, these effectively growing in the Christian life, if these things are yours and are increasing, you will never stumble, for an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God the Spirit urges us not to ignore this issue and pretend that it isn't in the Bible. The Spirit of God urges us to be diligent to make sure that we are truly among those who are the elect. Is my calling in the Gospel true? Is it sincere? Is it genuine? Have I really been called by God through His Gospel? Is my election sure? Am I absolutely confident that if I took my last breath right now, I am among the elect people of God and I'm going to enter into the gates of glory and be with Christ forever? Am I sure of that? If you're not sure of that, there's no way you can live boldly for the sake of Christ in this world. You will be floundering. You will be stumbling. You will have no confidence in the Lord. There will be no uh, encouragement in your heart to pray. You won't have joy. You won't have any assurance in sharing the Gospel with others in the world. You won't even feel an urgency to share the Gospel with others in the world because you're not even sure that you yourself are saved. Assurance is tied to this issue of election. And if you simply ignore this issue of election, you're never going to be deeply rooted in Christ enough to have genuine assurance. So we're commanded. 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Make your calling and election sure. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't just assume that you're a believer because you're here in this room sitting in this pew and you've been a member for 35 years, 40 years, 50 years. Don't assume that you are a believer because of that. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. If I were not... Listen... Listen, I know that this can come across very hard, but I'm trying to be a faithful shepherd over each one of your souls. I'm going to have to give an account for your soul one day and how I handled you as an under-shepherd of Christ. And the last thing I want, the last thing I want is for any one of you to approach death and to come to the gates of God's kingdom and say, Seth never warned me about this. He never told me that I could be deceived. He never challenged or urged me to make sure that I was a true believer. He just assumed that I was a believer. And so I assumed that I'm a believer. And now it's too late. You might feel that this is not loving, but this is the most loving thing I could do for you. Have you genuinely been saved? Are you truly belonging to Christ? Has He made you? Has He brought you out of your sin? And I'm serious. Do you still live your life in sin? Do you still indulge the lust of the flesh without a troubled conscience whatsoever? Can you ignore the Lord for weeks on end and be untroubled by that? Can you be absent from the prayer closet or ignore the Scriptures for any lengthy period of time and feel that you are still in a right relationship with the Lord? 
Can you just look like the rest of the world and live like the rest of the world and have the ambitions of the rest of the world and spend your money frivolously and look up shopping tabs on your phone while the sermon's being preached and check Facebook all the time and be concerned about what everyone else is thinking of you. If you can live your life like that, you need to question yourself as to whether you're a true believer. I'm not trying to be angry. I'm not angry at you. I'm not. I'm really not angry at you. I just love you. And the last thing I want for any one of you is to bust the gates of hell open because you didn't take this exhortation seriously. I'm going to have a heart attack up here one day. Yeah, no, pray against that. That's right. If I die in the pulpit, that will be a glorious day. I know, that it, I know that I can be difficult to listen to at times. I'm sorry for that. But please, I'm just trying to communicate to you the seriousness of what you're being confronted with right now. As an old preacher says, I used to listen to him much more than I do now, but if your child was wandering over onto a railroad tracks and there was a train coming about to hit your child, how would you expect me to speak to him? Hey, hey, come back. Hey, don't get on the railroad tracks. It's dangerous. That train's going to hit you. Or would you demand that I yell, Hey, get off the tracks. The train's coming. I feel like we're all on the tracks. We're all on the tracks. And we need to move. We need to be moved. And we're not going to be moved by some lullaby voice that's telling us everything's okay. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. What are your greatest concerns in life? Do you love Christ? Genuinely love Christ? And does your life show that? Does my life show that? Well, that is the question. How do we make our calling and our election sure? How do we do that? Well, in one sense, making your calling and election sure is very simple. How can you know whether you are among the elect? Simply put, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And do you trust in him as your Lord and your Savior? John Calvin loved this. I love that John Calvin said this. In fact, if you want to read more of John Calvin's statements on this, you can go to book 3, chapter 24, and I think it's sections 3 through 7, if I'm not mistaken. But he speaks about this a lot. He says, uh, very simply, how, how can we know that God has elected us from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world? By believing in Jesus Christ. How can you know that God has chosen you to be saved? Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that simple. We're the ones that complicate it. This is exactly what we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. How does election manifest itself in a person's life? Well, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through being called by the gospel, which manifests in faith in the truth. Believing in the truth. 
So the question is, do you believe the truth? Do you truly believe the truth with the James kind of faith? You know what I mean? We were just going over this in Sunday school today. The kind of faith that James talks about. Not, not the faith that is as good as a, as a spiritless body. right? Just as, just as a body without the soul is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You can profess to believe in Jesus all day long. And you can be nothing more than an empty shell of a, of, of a, of a declared reality. Just an empty shell of faith, but not genuine. Do you have genuine faith that gives birth to a lifestyle that seeks to honor the Lord? Do you have genuine faith that constantly renounces sin and selfishness in your life, is constantly repenting of sin, and is always turning to the Lord Jesus Christ? Always. Is He your rock? Is He your stay? Is He your foundation? Is He your appointed lot? Is He your inheritance? Can you say with the psalmist, it is the nearness of God is my good. In my own heart, in my own flesh might fail. Everything in life might crumble and come to nothing. I could lose my house, my job, my income may be gone, my family might perish. I could, I could be out on the streets with nothing, and yet even at that moment, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and He is my portion forever. Can you say that? And I love the Lord Jesus with a kind of love that is incorruptible. Not a perfect love, but a love that is unchallenged by the things of the world. Do I truly love the Lord? Do I truly trust in what Jesus Christ has done as my only hope? You know, the, one of the joys that I have is seeing people saved. Um, you guys okay? Can I just share this? You all right with that? I don't think I need to ask your permission. If, if you need to leave, you're welcome to leave. Okay, I understand. But this last, so, so I do a, a, basically a Bible study at Oak Ridge Place here in Stillwater. It's just in, uh, a home. Marie lives there, right? And so uh, for the last two times I've been there, there's this one precious lady that the last two times, as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and I've even taught them about the doctrine of election. Yes, they're about to exit this world and go be with Christ in, in, a, in the number of years ahead, but they need to understand this too. As I have taught them through this, this one sweet, precious elderly woman with tears in her eyes who has looked at me the last two times I've been there and says, I finally understand what this is talking about. I finally understand the gospel. She said, I live my life. I've done horrible things in my life. And no one has ever explained to me the gospel the way you've explained it. She's been saved. Just by talking about the realities of the gospel. I wonder, have, has that happened to you? Don't get squirmy and fidgety and, and just looking at your watch and waiting on when you can get out of here. Please don't do that. Don't do that. Have you been saved? Has this book, have you been awakened to this book and the realities of God's glory and goodness and His compassion, 
His steadfast love and His faithfulness that's been manifested to us through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Have you seen that? Or is it still an enigma to you? Is it still something you pick up this book and you're like, I don't even know what it's saying. The Spirit of God gives us a mind to understand the things of God. Have you been saved? If you can say that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to rejoice with all of your heart in the fact that you are among God's chosen people. You didn't have to be, but he chose you to be. And you should glorify him with your life because of that. If you're not able to say that you are among the elect and that bothers you, if you are not able to say I'm truly believing in Jesus and that troubles your soul, then you need to tremble and you need to fear and you need to flee to the Lord Jesus for refuge until He lets you in. You need to pound on His door until the gates open. You need to seek Him until you find Him. You need to knock until that door's open, right? You need to be the Syrophoenician woman who refuses to take no for an answer. That even if Jesus were to turn around and say to you, salvation is not for you, you are a dog. You would still have the gumption to look back to Jesus and say, yes, but even the dogs get crumbs when they fall from the table. I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob. If you're not sure that you are among the elect or if you're saved, if you truly know Christ and believe in Him, then that is the attitude you must adopt. You must seek Him until you find Him. Or die trying. Now, if you are not sure that you're among the elect and you're not sure that you're believing and that doesn't bother you, then hear the words of the Lord to you from Revelation and fear. The time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. But he who thirsts, let him come and freely drink. Until the day this Lord whom you have rejected comes and gives you your just reward, I would urge you to tremble. So believer, rejoice. Questioning, unsure person, not sure if you're a believer, fear and tremble and run to the Lord until He lets you find Him. You who don't care, you better fear. Because the day of judgment and vengeance is coming. And by then it will be too late. Let's pray together. Father, none of, us, none of us manifest a perfect faith. And so, please guard us from judging ourselves by the standard of a perfect faith. We don't want that. We don't need that. But Lord, we do, we do want a genuine and sincere faith. That though it's not perfect, though it is stumbling, though it sins often against you and against our own conscience, 
Nevertheless, it has been redeemed and washed through the blood of Christ, granted to us as a gift, our souls having been cleansed through the perfect work of Jesus. And, and with, by your grace, we have in ourselves a true desire to be pleasing to you. Lord, would you please perfect that within us? Don't let us fall into the traps of despair. Let the simplicity of the gospel message be ours in abundance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now hear a benediction from Colossians chapter 3. If you then have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You set your mind on those truths and go in the peace of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.